The government's top trade priority is securing a Trans-Pacific Partnership deal involving the United States. The Prime Minister John Key pushed the case for a deal during his recent visit to Washington D.C., but critics argue New Zealand has little to gain and a lot to lose. Political reporter Julian Robbins travelled with Mr. Key, and in this insight, he considers what's at stake in the negotiations. All right, everybody, all set. On a sweltering Washington D.C. afternoon, John Key receives the warmest of White House welcomes. Welcome, my my good friend, Prime Minister Key,、uh, to the Oval Office. The Prime Minister's half-hour audience with President Barack Obama capped off two days of top-level talks for Mr. Key, held against the backdrop of the escalating crisis over U.S. debt. And the relationship is、um, incredibly warm. One, I mean, I'm, you know, I've got to be、uh, the luckiest prime minister of New Zealand in the last 25 years. I've come to Washington, and every single person who we've met with from the administration has wanted to see us, has welcomed us, has thanked us for the contribution we're making, and has actually genuinely acknowledged that we're playing a different role. Do you credit with that? Well, I think it's a look. It's a lot of actually successive administrations and prime ministers. If we're genuinely honest, they've all put in the hard yards. I mean, and I think we all are well and truly aware of you know the, the issues that we face. But in the end, we've come to an elegant solution. Mr. Key's itinerary in Washington had two main focuses: defence and trade. But whereas the military relationship and the nuclear issue would once have dominated, in 2011 it was the economy and trade that took centre stage. More specifically, all eyes were on the ambitious nine-country Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Talks, or TPP. Pushing its merits was John Key's number one mission in Washington, as he explained in a speech to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. TPP represents something genuinely new, and we think very important. Will establish a framework that will work for countries as diverse as Vietnam, New Zealand, and the United States. It's important to note that New Zealand wants a high-quality agreement. It needs to be flexible and it needs to be future-proofed, and it needs to address the trade and economic issues of the 21st century. After years of seeking a simple two-party free trade deal with the U.S., New Zealand is now investing all its efforts in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And seemingly, it's President Obama's top trade goal too. The talks are currently the only trade negotiations the U.S. is conducting. Prime Minister and I discussed、uh, a range of、uh, economic issues, including、uh, our great interest in promoting、uh, a more、uh, effective trade regime among the Asia-Pacific nations,、uh, and we're working on this Trans-Pacific Partnership. We hope to have a framework agreement. By the time that、uh, we go to Honolulu for the APEC meeting,、uh, but just what is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and what does New Zealand stand to gain or lose in the ongoing negotiations? The Trade Minister Tim Grosser refuses to put any dollar figures on the potential benefits of a deal, insisting instead that its merits are self-evident. If you assume that there's a fair chance of this leading to.、Uh, A whole Asia-Pacific free trade area, and that's exactly how our American friends see it. The potential of this is enormous. If you take a more restricted view, that this is fundamentally just about an FTA with the United States,、uh, it's positive, but more modest, obviously. Nine countries are currently negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership: New Zealand, Australia, the United States, Singapore, Brunei, Malaysia, Vietnam, Chile, and Peru. Others, including Japan and Korea, are waiting on the sidelines, watching developments closely.
A Japanese MP, Kyuchi Takatane, believes ultimately his government will sign up. If we do not decide to even start the negotiation, it will mean that we will be isolated. All the numbers are already showing that we are starting to be isolated, and all the trade volumes are kind of decreasing. We have had no growth in the past 20 years. We kept on running away from making all the important decisions in the past, but we should come and face these big issues. Adding Japan would create a larger, more balanced deal, less dominated by the world's largest economy, the U.S. <laughs> Over coffee in Wellington, the U.S. APEC ambassador Kurt Tong is optimistic about expanding the negotiations, and he disagrees with critics who suggest the talks are being conducted entirely on U.S. terms. That's a, a concern that we face、um, frequently from FTA partners because the United States is the largest economy on the planet. So every economy that we negotiate a free trade agreement with feels, gosh, they're bigger than us.、Right? But the fact of the matter is that when you when you negotiate an agreement,、um, both sides have an equal voice because they're both there. And you don't have an agreement unless both sides agree. So you know, takes two to tango is the basic principle of, of a negotiation. In this case, it takes nine to tango, which makes it a really complicated dance, more like a square dance than a tango. But the the basic idea that that each country is a sovereign state and can represent its own interests is true. I think. The negotiations, which were initiated under the previous Labour-led government, are hugely complex and face major hurdles. The U.S. dairy industry, for example, remains steadfastly opposed to any deal that would allow Fonterra greater access to the U.S. market. The president of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Tom Suber, sees opportunity for his industry in Asia, but doesn't want further competition at home. We're quite pleased to have dairy be a topic. Throughout the entire region,、uh, we just feel that the U.S.-New Zealand component should not include dairy. Dairy should be part of the overall agreement. New Zealand-Vietnam, U.S.-Vietnam, Vietnam-Chile, that would be fine. But with the U.S. having the attractiveness of the world's largest dairy market against a virtual state monopoly, the disproportionate ability for them to want to Devote even more resources to our market makes it quite unattractive. That essentially sounds like protectionism in what is a deal that's meant to be about liberalisation, though. It's about liberalisation, but in an area where the New Zealand government has been giving substantial aid and comfort to its own、um, national champion. The dairy industry is considered one of the most powerful lobby groups in Washington. An Auckland University law professor and free trade critic, Jane Kelsey, can't see it rolling over. We don't have access problems accessing most of the Trans-Pacific Partnership、uh, markets. The main one is the U.S. for dairy, and if we really think that the U.S. is going to throw open its dairy markets to Fonterra, then we've got to come back to, to reality. Especially because next year is election year in the U.S. Uh, and the president is not going to offend key constituencies, you know. So we're looking at two years down the track. Who knows what's going to happen then? But we can be pretty sure one of the things that will not happen is throwing open U.S. dairy markets to Fonterra. But Tim Grosser begs to differ. The Korea diplomat turned MP rejects the U.S. Dairy Export Council's position out of hand. Well, that's a non-starter. I mean, we won't sign a deal on that basis. 
and I'm sure Tom uh, has to protect his political position, knows full well that that's a nonsense position. We won't do this deal with dairy excluded. End of story. I can't be more blunt or explicit. That said, Tim Grosser admits the dairy issue is difficult. But there's a way to do it. It's not our job, of course, to manage the American domestic political program. What I and the Prime Minister made clear is that, that you take dairy out, there's no deal. Um, they know that they're operating within that framework, and they have to find a way of building political support. The House will come to order. Members are advised to please take their conversations off the floor. But on Capitol Hill in Washington, the dairy industry is aggressively lobbying U.S. lawmakers and believes it has substantial support in Congress. A Republican House representative, Kevin Brady, says the American industry needs to look beyond its domestic market to the potential of emerging markets. The idea that uh, the U.S. dairy has, I think, is focused on this, sort of this looking at New Zealand versus the United States. Uh, I think there's a way to talk to the U.S. dairy community about the U.S. opportunities in all the other countries uh, as, who are uh, partners in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the consumers that are there, the opportunities that will come from a TPP. But it's not just dairy access that's a possible sticking point. The U.S. pharmaceutical industry is also targeting the drug-buying agency Pharmac. Peter Maberduke is Director of Medicines Access at the U.S. consumer group Public Citizen and believes Pharmac is worth fighting for. New Zealand is a small country and has to do what it, what it is able to do to control costs through bulk purchasing. Uh, Pharmac plays a pretty critical role in that, as I understand it. And, you know, New Zealand has, has set some positive precedent in these negotiations, actually, and, and seems to be turning a positive corner regarding some of its policies in this area. New Zealand has played a, a very positive role at the intellectual property negotiating table, taking on you know, the, the United States uh, and saying that the model that it envisions for this agreement is wrong. By acting as the monopoly purchaser of subsidised drugs for the public health system, Pharmac drives a tough bargain and pushes costs down. Peter Maberduke says the pharmaceutical industry wants to keep prices high for as long as possible. He says that's bad for New Zealand, but even worse for poorer countries such as Vietnam. As far as we can tell, it's likely that a number of these provisions in the agreement were simply drafted by the giant pharmaceutical companies. Right? And there's no logic to them. They're simply whatever new excuse can be invented to extend the marketing monopoly models. They want to be able to, on a worldwide basis, patent any new formulation of a drug that they bring to market. So they turn something from a capsule into a tablet. They want 20 years of being the only company that can sell that tablet and be able to charge whatever they want for it. Jane Kelsey believes the U.S. industry does not want to see the Pharmac model adopted by other countries with bigger markets. Big Pharma in the U.S. is concerned about New Zealand's laws and Pharmac, not so much because we're a big market that they can make lots of money out of, but because of the precedent-setting value of an agreement. And if they're seen to agree to something that is less than either what's in existing agreements or the optimum beyond that that they're after, uh, then the industry lobby will be concerned. And they have enormous influence in the U.S. Congress, uh, and they will be pressuring the government to make sure that this is the US government that this is one of the bottom lines in a Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. But the US drug companies insist they just want greater transparency. Kelman Cohen is the spokesperson for the group the US Business Coalition for the TPP, which includes GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer and Procter & Gamble. 
Many of the drugs that are developed in the United States are very, very, very sophisticated drugs to deal with the ailments that affect us today. And they're concerned about their having that information and pricing of those drugs be reflective of the work that went into developing them. The government is clearly sensitive about the Pharmac issue. Tim Grosser says Pharmac remains on the table for negotiation, but only at the margins. The New Zealand public health system is not up for negotiation. Pharmac is an absolutely integral and highly successful policy instrument of that public health system. It enjoys very wide political support across the political spectrum, not just obviously uh, in the two major parties, and we're not about to change its fundamentals. Tim Grosser won't rule out procedural changes at Pharmac, but refuses to go into detail. While much of the focus from New Zealand is on Pharmac and dairy access, the Trans-Pacific Partnership covers far more than just market access and intellectual property rights. Public Citizens Trade Watch Director Laurie Wallach says the US is less interested in trade and tariffs than it is in investment rules and regulations. The word and brand free trade is like a clever marketing tool that covers, that wraps around the delivery mechanism of an entirely toxic package of non-trade policies that really wouldn't survive the scrutiny of sunshine. You couldn't pass them publicly in a domestic, democratic, countable, debated forum. And so when we think of it in the U.S., you know, we sort of think of it as like a Trojan horse. Laurie Wallach, who describes herself as a recovering trade attorney, says U.S. trade policy is conducted by and for a few big multinational corporations. Our trade negotiation system has 800 official advisors. And despite public citizens suing up one side and down the other, this mix of 800 still is about 780 corporate advisors and 20 labor union, one consumer, two environmental, and that's it, advisors. So they literally are writing the rules. Laurie Wallach says the Trans-Pacific Partnership follows what she calls the failed model of NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement. The agreement, if the U.S. gets its way, is to have extraordinary new foreign investor rights and privileges. For New Zealand, for instance, the right to own land anywhere for any use, stomping all over the big fight you're having right now about foreign ownership of farmland, a decision your country should make through your democratic processes that should not be imposed through a trade agreement. And these new rules would be enforced, as they have been under NAFTA, with new rights for foreign investors to sue your government, skirting your courts and your laws by dragging your government to United Nations and World Bank tribunals, where they are able to demand compensation, these foreign corporations, from you, the taxpayers, us, the taxpayers, for any domestic policy that they believe undermines their expected future profits and their new rights under the trade agreement. Those concerns are echoed in Wellington by the Greens co-leader, Russell Norman. He has serious concerns about the future of public health, labour and environmental regulations. It is fundamentally an issue of sovereignty. If democratically elected governments lose the right to regulate, um, to protect people's health or to protect the environment, then I think we really have given away um, key aspects of our sovereignty to basically multinational corporations um, because they will be able to threaten us. And Russell Norman says that threat is very real. 
Philip Morris is taking action, inaction against the federal government in Australia because the Australian federal government is trying to restrict Philip Morris's ability to advertise with this plain packaging of cigarettes. And so Philip Morris is using these investor state disputes provisions within a treaty between Australia and Hong Kong to sue Australia for loss of property if this goes ahead. The investment protection provisions are being pushed by US negotiators and promoted by major American corporations. Kelman Cohen, whose group also represents Philip Morris, Boeing, Ford, Monsanto, Microsoft and Visa, argues the investment provisions and trade deals protect all sides. What's being entertained in Australia is to remove the intellectual property, to remove the trademark emphasis on a product. The companies will then compete on price, price will be lowered, more people and young people will smoke. There's no objection to increasing smoking or reducing the incidence of smoking. It's how you do it. And our argument is do it in a way, such as through excise taxes and such, that have been proven to reduce it. For Kelman Cohen, the Trans-Pacific Partnership represents an opportunity to create coherent trade rules throughout the region. We don't see this as a threat. We see it as a way to ensure that the final policies that are decided are done in a fashion that is fully democratic and open. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which represents some three million businesses, large and small, is also backing investor disputes provisions. Its Vice President for Asia, Tammy Overby, dismisses the concerns of critics. I realize there's a lot of fear out there, but I think if people look at the history of uh, how many times investor state dispute uh, mechanism have actually been used, they would see that it's really not the big boogeyman that people think it is. Um, I think it really is designed for very small, um, uh, certain applications, and I don't think you're going to see widespread companies suing governments over um, uh, small regulatory challenges. I think it really is for the large uh, significant problems. With the text of the proposed deals still under wraps, it's not clear just how extensive the protections for foreign investment will be. But Tim Grocer is adamant the government's not about to give up the ability to make rules and regulations in New Zealand's domestic interest. We will not sign up to any agreement on investor state dispute settlement that does not exiled or have exclusions for legitimate public policy purposes, of which public health is the most obvious. Would, envir so would environmental and labour laws also be included to, there? Well, the drafting on that will be, have to be done with great care. This is quite standard in international trade law. If you look at the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, which is the foundation document of the WTO, you'll find that there are general exceptions clauses. And Tim Grocer argues New Zealand knows what it's doing when it comes to drawing up such agreements. We'll be following a model similar to the, what the previous government negotiated in the China FTA. Uh, we have no criticism to make of what they did in that. Uh, we think it works well. It's got exceptions for public health. Um, we're not going to sign up to a, uh, a provision that stops the, a future New Zealand government from going around its proper business of protecting the public interest. Say, for example, Labour wins the next election, wants to raise the minimum wage to $15, a big bump, and a foreign company here, its business model is based on minimum wage. Could they have a case to seek compensation for that regulation change? Uh, only if our negotiators were so incompetent as to agree to loosely worded language that would allow such an idiotic result.
Tim Gross's staunch defence of New Zealand's negotiating position is to be expected. He's dedicated his career, both prior to becoming an MP and since, to negotiating free trade deals. But Russell Norman believes the world has moved on, and the Pacific Partnership, with its focus on less regulation, is out of date. This whole process began on the other side of the global financial crisis and of course when it began it was all about constraining the ability of governments to regulate the financial markets and now of course right across the planet everyone's working out how we can regulate and constrain financial markets rather than the government's ability to regulate financial markets and so the TPP is looking increasingly antiquated in that respect. That's not a view John Key would accept in any way. Speaking just minutes after his Oval Office talks with President Obama, the Prime Minister was upbeat about progress. When we spoke to um, the US Trade Rep, um, Ron Kirk, he made it clear that that's the ambitions uh, on the American side is to have a high-level document that we can sign at uh, APEC in Honolulu. President reaffirmed that in his comments to us that that's where they'd like to go. Uh, they committed to this. They see it as very important on a number of fronts. And uh, I think there's real momentum here. I mean, at the moment, they're having to deal very much with the issues at hand, which is their debt and deficit. But they're going to get through that. With a short-term deal now done to lift the US debt ceiling and reduce spending, the Congress may now turn its attention to trade matters. It currently has three outstanding trade deals, with Colombia, Panama and South Korea, that have been waiting several years for approval. A Democratic Congressman, Rick Larson, is hopeful that will now happen. It will add momentum to TPP, and I think it will help uh, bolster uh, the belief that this is very much a pro-trade Congress. Administration wants to engage very aggressively around the world. Rick Larson may be a fan of free trade, but it's not always enjoyed widespread support in the U.S. and is blamed for job losses by many, including the labor unions. However, The Economist Fred Bergston from the Washington-based think tank the Peterson Institute for International Economics, which describes itself as non-partisan, believes the tide is turning. The U.S. has set a strategy of rebalancing its own economy in order to get a sustained recovery. The U.S. realizes it cannot go back to an economy led by debt finance, consumer demand, excessive investment in housing, stuff like that. The U.S. has to find alternative ways to grow its economy and create jobs. And a big part of that is trade. And Fred Bergston believes the U.S. is looking beyond just economic arguments to broader foreign policy goals. The United States realizes that to be a leader in the region, to manifest its role as a Pacific power, it's got to be economically engaged because that's where the running is, that's where the priorities are to most of the countries in the region, including China to a large extent. And so the U.S. sees a huge foreign policy and national security objective in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and I think those two things together suggest that the U.S. will continue to give it high priority and will be an active participant and indeed leader in the process. Back in New Zealand, Jane Kelsey also sees the Trans-Pacific Partnership as part of a bigger picture that includes foreign policy and regional influence. She is far from convinced that the high ambitions of the deal's supporters will be matched in reality. Even though there are no economic returns 
WikiLeaks has told us our ministers and officials don't expect there to be. They think this is part of a geopolitical strategy that can perhaps counterbalance the influence of China in the Asia-Pacific. That's a a very long-term speculative option. Um, Some of us can't see countries like Japan, Korea, India and China signing on to a deal that's been negotiated by a number of other countries. Uh, And it's a very long bow to draw in justifying entering an agreement that could impact on Farm Act, tobacco control, laws, GE and a whole range of other domestic priorities. But it is domestic priorities in the US that may yet prove the most difficult obstacle to overcome. Phil Levy was an economic advisor to the presidential campaign of Republican Senator John McCain and is now a scholar at the Washington-based American Enterprise Institute. You've already had a little bit of controversy where you look at nations like Brunei or Vietnam and those trigger some of the concerns that have traditionally been raised among critics of trade agreements with uh, labor issues, human rights, state-owned enterprises. But there's enough going on with the pending agreements that need to be done, plus other disputes in the U.S., that at the moment I think there's a, a sort of vague general sense of goodwill towards the TPP without a consensus on exactly what this means. Phil Levy argues the Obama administration will have a tough time selling the deal to its supporters. The more of these fights you pick and the more groups that you have agitated, you need to counterbalance that with groups who are wildly enthusiastic. And it it really poses a significant political challenge. And it's also an issue for an administration whose primary concerns have been domestic. How much political capital do they want to spend pushing an international agreement through? Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations will next month enter their eighth round of talks to be held in Chicago, with a ninth set in Peru before APEC leaders meet in Hawaii in November. At that meeting, broad outlines of a deal are expected to be ready, but negotiations will stretch into 2012. Tammy Overby from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says that's a presidential election year, and that makes everything in Washington more complicated. I think there really is a recognition at the most senior levels in both political parties that trade agreements help create jobs at a time when America desperately needs new jobs. But does the public accept that? And as I say, at a time when unemployment is high, does anyone really want to stick their head above the parapet and have that argument? People would be very reluctant to do that the closer to the U.S. presidential election that we come, which is why I think there is hope that we would get substantial conclusion uh, of this deal by APEC this November and then complete it in 2013, but then actually selling it to Congress, that will take a little bit of time afterwards. But Phil Levy points out U.S. negotiators are already operating without the express backing of Congress. Under the U.S. system, If you are going to have negotiations that will then result in a protected agreement, one that could be put before the Congress and get an up-down vote without any killer amendments, you need to have something called trade negotiating authority. In the past, it's been called trade promotion authority or fast track. But it, it sets out the parameters for the negotiators and says, if you follow these parameters, the result will be protected. Congress still retains the authority to vote it up or down, but they can't amend it away, and they can't sit on it forever. At least in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. The negotiators don't have that authority at the moment. They're acting as if the old authority is still in force. They know it's not, and they have said publicly that they can get it when they need it. That remains to be seen. It's it's something that I think most people think will be quite contentious. 
Groups such as Public Citizen will dedicate themselves to ensuring the Trans-Pacific Partnership is more than just contentious. Laurie Wallach is convinced the public and the Congress have had it with the sort of deal being negotiated on their behalf. The notion that the US negotiators are in this push to try and get other countries to accept this old failed model that is no longer supported here is sort of one of the dirty secrets of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation because their strategy is to force it on all of you, then try and get some kind of a deal claiming that's what's necessary, bring it back here where it's not going to be supported, and then claim, ooh, it'll be a diplomatic crisis if we don't pass this. Look, we've spent years negotiating it. But it's a really risky strategy because I feel pretty confident it's either going to have to be a very new deal or there's going to be no deal that ever gets approved here. That Radio New Zealand Insight was written and presented by Julian Robbins, produced by Philippa Tolley, technical production by Leanne Smith.